When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. This is the sound of a boxing club near the bottom of the Dublin Mountains. Nothing remarkable about that. There are hundreds of clubs across the country. This one is different because it's a boxing class for children with autism. I know Reginald, if that's his name, uh, is a boxing teacher. Uh, and uh, I, I know that he's okay at it. Almost as extraordinary as the club itself is the person who runs it. He's a guy called Reg Byrne. And Reg has faced some serious disadvantage in his life. It is a very, very challenging disability, and I see the challenges all too often. But he still stands here today doing this work, and it's because he believes in the transformative power of sport, especially his beloved boxing. Over the years, it has saved many a person, absolutely has, without doubt. I should know because Reg took me from a tough spot in my life to a global achievement I thought could never happen. My name is Megan Byrne, and I know this guy quite well. He's my dad. And if you'll bear with me, I'd like to tell you his story because I think you just might find it as extraordinary as I do. My name is Reg Bourne, um, from Monkstown Farm. And uh, this is where I was born and reared. And that's actually my house there. On the right-hand side there, that is um, St. Patrick's Crescent Monkstown Farm. And I was born to uh, my mother, who was Nula Mooney, before marriage, and my dad's name is Kevin Bourne, who just lived around the corner from her. And um, when I was born, um, I was born with a condition called spina bifida. And uh, at the time I was born, um, it was obviously <coughs> a shock to my mother and a shock to my father. And um, as a young man growing up, I kind of knew I was always slightly different because I kind of walked slightly different than most people. And as a child, you kind of uh, pick up on these things. Monkstown Farm is a small community in South Dublin. It's about a mile from Dunleary, which some of you might know. And we're in the car driving the streets of his childhood. It's probably fair to say that when Red was born here in 1970, it was a tough neck of the woods. I was a hardy little head anyway at the time and I had a little brother who I had a brother who was slightly older. So uh, we kind of were we were kind of like uh, not twins but we weren't far off it. We were two tough little characters. And unfortunately the home we were brought up in at the time was an alcoholic home and it was a sad situation for everybody in question because um being in a situation like that for any child is tough, you know. As I grew up, I came to understand what a central part of my dad's story, Spina Bivita, was. As, as, as a child up to probably three, I didn't realise that um, regular checkups were the norm for me. So I used to go into uh, the Richmond Hospital and there was a doctor there called Dr Pate. So I was brought in, checked from head to toe and, uh, you know, uh, they call it Spina Bivita Clinic. 
and my dad used to bring me in on the back of the motorbike at the time, no helmet. Actually, apologise, on the front of the motorbike, on the hank of the motorbike, and that's actually true. He, he'll laugh at that now today, but that's exactly what he did. Jerry Maguire is one of the leading advocates for people born with spina bifida. As well as having been born with the condition himself, he is the CEO of Spina Bifida Ireland. Spina Bifida literally means split spine, which means that when the baby is in the womb, the spine doesn't form into the one uniform organ that it should be from back to brain and that it needs to be fused surgically very much after birth. Unfortunately, Ireland has a very high rate of spina bifida. I live with spina bifida myself and have done all my life. It, it, it is a very, very challenging disability and I see the challenges all too often amongst my members of how they try and cope with, with their lives on a day-to-day -day basis, which is not easy. Spina bifida takes many forms and my dad's version of it affected his legs in particular, which is why what he ended up doing almost beggars belief. But I'll get to that part of the story in a minute. For the time being, as a young child, he had to deal with the fact that he wasn't walking properly. My case was that I had a neurological problem below the left leg, meaning the left knee on the left leg, and my muscle would never properly develop and my foot would never properly my foot would develop but never properly move. So that was an ongoing thing for years. But then as a young man, sorry, as a young child, uh, it was um, it was a thing that I noticed as a young child that I was slightly different than all the other kids in regards to my walking and my ability to do certain things. This was far from the only challenge Raj was facing. As he was coming to terms with managing his disability, other factors were very much at play. Throughout all of this then, unfortunately, certain things were happening in the home. And uh, it was it was it was a tough it was a tough old station for me and my brother. And uh, my mother was it was tough for my mother as well as an alcoholic. It was very very hard. However, um, we learned to live with it. And unfortunately, um, with the house that I was brought up in, there was violence in it as well. There was a lot of violence, and the violence was horrific for both of me and my brother and my father, and uh, and my mother as well, obviously, because. I've learned to come to uh, a conclusion today that, unfortunately for her, she didn't know how to deal with her problems. And she, she, she certainly had a horrific, horrific upbringing herself. Her mother died when she was seven, and she was a twin. And her father was, her father was an alcoholic, and that's exactly the house I was brought up in as well. Reg has come to understand that although his mum was violent, there were other factors at play in her life, which would have been tough on her given the era. I, I understood that she kind of never broke the cycle of what she was doing, because what was done to her was really done to us. And uh, when she was seven years of age, when my mother, my grandmother passed away, her sister, to my knowledge, was taken out of the house and she was left in the house with her brother, her special needs brother and her father. She married my dad uh, in, uh, in, in, in her earlier years. I think, she, I think she was 19 or 20 when she married my dad. And uh, my mother was gay as well, and she knew she was gay when she was, um, when she was getting married to my dad, which was a tough one for her, a really tough one. And again, going back into the research of why and why things happened to myself, my brother, and in the home, that was probably one of the reasons why uh, she probably turned to drink as well. 
over the years. Reg also had to deal with the knowledge that, because this was the 1970s and Spina Bivita was so badly understood at the time, his mum wanted to walk away. I'm not really uh, happy to say, but I'll say it anyway, but um, my mother probably threw a situation where she panicked. She probably thought I was mentally disabled when I was born, but I actually wasn't. I was physically disabed. And uh, she wanted to give me up for adoption straight away. But um, I think my dad stepped in and uh, decided um, to stop it because I think they needed two signatures at the time. And my dad said he'll bring me up if, 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 if we had to. However, uh, starting then from the home and being a child was point of vivida and a, and a woman basically that didn't want me. And that was, that was hard. And again, that's one of the researches I did as an older person. I could never understand why my mother didn't want me. And I still don't understand to this day because we had a very, very um, difficult uh, relationship. But uh, I always loved the woman and I always will and I always did. The stories of what happened inside his home are hard for Dad to tell and me to listen to, but I think they are important to hear, not just by me, but so many others who are in situations like this. Um, I don't think she could ever accept that she had a child like me, to be honest. But uh, we got on with it. Then Dad left, and uh, when my dad left, then um, it slightly got worse. And throughout all of this then, again... Uh, we kept going, it was the norm for us. His mum would go to the local pub and then at closing time, real trouble started. My mother used to bring back a lot of drunks to the house and um, there was a lot of them and they used to come back to our house and unfortunately we'd be dragged out of the bed and I'd be on the bottom bunk and she'd be dragging me out of bed telling me to get down and make sandwiches for all these strangers and then we'd be getting up in the mornings and they'd be literally lying around the stairs and the hallway and the sitting room and half dressed and we'd be going in as young young lads going I'd be actually going in to rob their purse and literally take money out of it and buy me lunch for school and I'd have the best lunch for school every Monday and Tuesday. Then we go back to the old corned beef sandwiches. What I love about dad is that in the middle of all this he can still have a laugh about what was happening at the time. I remember a situation going to school one day and Mrs Morrissey uh, got all over. She was a young teacher at the time and I was only a nipper and she came over to me and says, Mr Bourne, come over here, please. I said, yes, miss. Can I smell drink off you? Miss, I'm only a child. She actually could smell drink off me because I went into the room that day and I picked up a bottle and I drank a mouthful out of it. That's what she could smell off me. That was when I was going in to steal the money out of the bags. And um, I used to get a fair few quid on a Monday morning, to be honest with you. I'd sneak down about six in the morning knowing they'd be all asleep. Or half of them, or most of them would be asleep. And they'd be, some of them would know what it would actually be doing. They'd wink at me and say, we know what you're doing, don't worry about it. Again, through all this adversity and alcohol and trouble and everything else, we had to be kids, but we were never able to be kids, ever. And then I was the kid with the disability as well, so that was even a little bit harder for me. It may seem obvious to say, but Dad wasn't the only one struggling with the disability. Jerry Maguire, who you heard from earlier, was also trying to cope with spina bifida. I was bullied mercilessly as, as a child in school, and I was not the only one that was 
bullied because of my disability. It's going on today, I'm sure. You do feel different. In Reg's life, things were piling up and something was going to give. At the age of eight, it did. Before I tell you the next part of the story, it's worth just putting it into context. In the late 70s and early 80s, the Dunleary Monkstown area had serious social problems. Richard Boybar, the People Before Prophet TD, is the same age as my dad and grew up close to Dunleary. Well, my abiding memory is just how absolutely dire the unemployment situation was. I mean, it was more common not to have a job than to have a job. Because people had nothing to do, they were just looking for ways to, you know, essentially kill time. Uh, So it was everything from, you know, heroin to glue sniffing or, you know, uh, and of course a a lot of drinking. Cheap, cheap sherry, cheap cider. Dunleary is often presented as a prosperous place, but actually there was considerable amounts of deprivation and poverty in Dunleary, and then you had a time of economic recession and you had lots and lots of young people with literally nothing to do. And so it was very, very easy to fall into trouble, to fall into drug use. And, you know, for some people, there were ways out of that. But, of course, for other people, uh, they didn't. And, you know, there was a lot of tragedy. And some some of the impacts of how difficult it was in Dunleary for many people at that time still roll on with us today. In that environment, it was inevitable that Dad was going to get into something, and he did. Unfortunately, at the age of eight and nine, then I got into glue sniffing myself and my brother, and that was a, that was a horrific time as well for us. I mean, I think we were trying to trying to mask mask the. The pain and the suffering that we were going through as kids, like, you know, and, and, and living in an alcoholic home, I think a lot of people can relate to trying to forget about that and trying to get on with somewhat normality outside. So glue sniffing was the thing for us back in the day, and that was that was a big thing for me and my brother. And uh, we actually started glue sniffing, and we got in with people, started glue sniffing, and it was horrific. We were in the Ducks Pond in Dunleary. We, we were behind us here in, in Dunedin in the sheds, the old cow sheds, as we call them. We were in the Plaguers in Monkstown doing it. At one stage then, it, it literally just literally took over our lives and we ended up in a drug awareness group in Dunleary with that. And I was only a child, like, I was only... I think it was smoking and dabbling with drink and sniffing glue at the age of eight, nine and ten years of age. It was, it was crazy. Meanwhile, school was turning into a major issue for Reg. He couldn't read or write and the school's patience was wearing thin. I mean, I don't know how the school teachers like even kept us in school because we were mad in school as well. The pair of us were. We ended up both getting expelled from school at a very young age, I think it was 13, and Trevor was 13 as well, like, you know. Um, and then the other thing then was, um, throughout this whole uh, scenario, obviously, uh, the glue sniff and everything else brought its own troubles and brought its own problems, and you'd have the odd person knocking at the door trying to beat me up or beat Trevor up, or with the parents telling the other kids, stay away from them kids, they're mad. And... Uh, Eventually then, um, we kind of came off the drugs. We met a, we met a priest in Dunleary, Father Brian Power. I can only, I can only call him a person of, you know, absolute incredible, incredible um, kindness. And he took us into our house and he started feeding us every second day. Brian Power was really important to the lives of so many children who were drug addicted in Dunleary. In 1984, RT reported on him for Today Tonight. It's been developing since 1979 here 
1979, I did some reports on young people sleeping rough in Dunleary. And as far as I can judge now, that was the beginning of young people turning to drugs as some sort of an escape from other problems or simply for excitement and company. Who is this affecting in terms of age, in terms of their social background and so on? Yes. Well, I'm pretty sure now, unfortunately, that it's the, you know, the less well-off families that are likely to have drug problems, uh, certainly with heroin. I, I think that we need to look at other strata too, though. I mean, we're, we're ignoring, as I said, quite a considerable amount of experimentation with other drugs, which I believe goes on at all levels. It seemed like fighting and violence were now the only constants in Dad's life, and there was plenty of both in Monk Sound Farm. I think we were the first people on the road to get a driveway. My dad was a builder, so and a carpenter. He uh, he built our first driveway, and uh, we we took this opportunity to start using that to fight in, and we used to used to fight in it with our friends and do all sorts of crazy stuff, and uh, everybody used to come up and watch it, and we used to beat the shit out of each other in there. And, and, and gone to the extent of actually burning each other with cigarettes just to get someone to submit. And again, eight, nine, ten years of age doing this stuff. Um, we were the first probably per people on the road, myself and my brother, to get a snooker table. And uh, we used to bring the people in to play snooker. And my, ma my mother caught us a few times and she came home and she beat the shit out of every one of us uh, with a, a broom, one of the brooms we used to have to sweep the floors with. And uh, unfortunately, my brother, I think, got the worst end of that. And... Um, I kind of got a good bit of it as well, but my mate's got a good belt at the brush as well, in fairness. Red was absolutely rudderless. Violence was everywhere in his life. He'd been expelled from school, he was illiterate, struggling with spina bifida, and it looked like before he had even got to his teens, his life had gone down the tubes. Then, one day in the early 80s, a man approached him on his road. When I was 12 years of age, uh, I met a guy called... I can only say a guardian angel, literally. A guy called Kevin Kane. What a man. I was after being in a trouble on the streets or something, and he came up to me and he said to me, oh, you meet me here tomorrow and I'll have a chat with you and blah, 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 blah. And I said, all right, OK. So I met him and he brought me to a boxing slash kickboxing facility. It's hard to describe the impact Kevin Kane had on my dad a guardian angel who walked into his life at the lowest of ebbs. Kevin got him into a boxing group in Monksound Castle and Reg immediately knew that this was for him. Just in there, that castle, the Monksound Castle right there in front of me, in the basement of that, just around the corner of the side of it, was my very first experience with a pair of gloves on. Just over here to the left where the stairs are and my first punch in the face and my first boot and many a kid would have went, get me out of here. And I didn't say, get me out of here. I said, give me more of this. But he still wasn't in a club until one day he came across a door. That door was to be the gateway to the rest of his life. One day coming home from school, after being coached by Kevin and other people, I was just pissed off at life. Pissed off at being kind of picked on by people. And although it was a tough little character, it's still always, everyone wanted to kind of have a little go at you because you were slightly different or someone that didn't know you might have a little go at you. We're slightly different. I heard, um, I heard a noise behind the door one day and me being fearless or stupid, whatever you want to put it, I would say kind of bit of boat. 
um, I knocked on the door and on the door it had A-K-A-I All Style Kickboxing Association Ireland and there was a formidable human being behind that door that day which I didn't know and I knocked at the door and when I knocked at the door the guy opened and he said what do you want? I says uh, what are you doing in there? and he said to me get out of here now when he asked me what are you doing and I looked in and I saw some gloves and I saw these three little ropes like a boxing ring but it was very small and he turned, he turned and said to me get out of here and he gave me a little kick in the arse and off I went went down the road disgruntled little shit thinking how I could back up and beat him up but he was twice the size of me and he was actually ranked I think 10th in the world at kickboxing at the time I came back down to the laneway the next day and I heard the same noise I went back over to the door knocked on the door the formidable human being opened the door again and says can I come in he says why he says I'm being bullied he says come in so he brought me in and I stood there and to say that just getting slightly emotional now to say that I was after walking into heaven that day that's exactly the only way I can describe it it saved my life it absolutely saved my life and it still is to this day and Father Brian Pear who you heard a minute ago bought Dad his first pair of kickboxing boots it's hard to explain the impact that boxing in particular has on especially working class communities but if anyone can explain it Mick Dowling can he's regarded as the grandfather of Irish boxing and he's coached thousands of young people, especially in Dublin. He lives in Dublin. His club is in Dublin. The sports shop he owns is in Dublin. But he's keen to point out that he's no dub. Boxing has been my life. Uh, somebody has said I'm the, now the grandfather of uh, Irish uh, boxing, amateur boxing in particular, but I started boxing as a very, very young boy uh, down in my place where I was born and reared, down in Castle Comer in Kilkenny. So I'm a Kilkenny cat and um, emigrated up here to the Big Smoke way back in about 1965, long time ago. And I went from one extreme to another because I used to work in the coal mine when I was only a very young boy, 14, 15 years old. And then I moved from there, as I said, to Dublin. And that was a massive change. And I went from the, the muck and the dirt of the coal mine to the cleanliness uh, and pompous ceremony of the Gresham Hotel. Mick Dowling's message resonates in Reg's story. For so many young people, boxing saves them. Boxing is a working man's sport and over the years it has saved many a person, absolutely has without doubt. I have to say, luckily for myself, never into any sort of crime or devilment or trouble, but there are so many young people that it has got out of trouble. You know, the kids are all from the working class areas, the the, the mams and their dads are, are of that nature, working class. So it is. it has done a lot of work and I've been involved with some people that uh, would have been going the wrong way and I helped and managed to steer them the right way. And um, lots of other coaches and, and I'm only just one because when I did retire from boxing, which was as far back as 1975, I didn't walk away from it. I wanted to give back something to the sport that gave me so much. And I immediately started uh, coaching and I was coaching in Drimna Boxing Club. Uh, I was boxing for them as, as I finished up. I was uh, uh, boxing from the German Boxing Club. So I started giving back. 
Drimna Boxing Club is going to be significant, as I'll explain in a few minutes. Reg was now in a real club and he adored it. Internally, things are beginning to change. I still had anger, I still had pain. I still had a lot of stuff inside me that I needed to get out. And this was an absolute amazing tool for me to vent. It was in a controlled situation. I was sparring with these absolute guys that were far superior to me. But what I didn't realise was that my, my mindset was getting better. My well-being was getting better. These guys actually cared about me. They showed me love in a different way. And they taught me how to start doing things. All knowing that I was spina bifida. All knowing that I had a disability. And that to me is golden. Like anything in life, Reg's road back didn't run completely smoothly. He'd been accepted into another school, but frankly hated it. My fighting career started. I was a couple of years with the guys. Unfortunately, I got thrown out of school. I became a bit of a delinquent again. I was doing kickboxing. My coach would give me a kick in the hole. My saving grace, Kevin, would give me a slap in the ear, literally. And uh, I was really starting to get into uh, normal life now. I had a job in Brendella skirts, pressing skirts. Um, I went for the job and uh, it ended up saying that um, it was a presser required from FOSS. I couldn't read it properly because I couldn't read and write. And uh, I thought it was making presses, but it was pressing skirts. All this time, however, he worked himself to the bone at his boxing. And then this boy with spina bifida, which specifically affected his leg, did the unthinkable. He fought for the national kickboxing title. I fought for an Irish title in the embankment uh, under the guidance of Bommy. I lost that fight on a split decision against Willie Morden from uh, Rocky Lawler's gym in um, Waterford. And, uh, but my life now was on a pathway. My life was uh, productive. Uh, I was out of the drug scene. I was off the drink. I certainly didn't smoke. And um, I was now on a, on a pathway where people cared about me, people loved me, and people showed me love. But Reg was about to encounter love of a different kind. I left the alcoholic home and I had some sort of structure. I had a roof from my, over my head where there was no violence. And then um, I met a lovely girl at the age of 16, Catherine, who is now my wife. And they were together over 36 years now. When Reg met my mum, they didn't hang around in getting on with this new life. Things changed. <clears throat> this girl came into my life and she was just incredible. And uh, so within a couple of weeks, ironically, we ended up uh, moving into um, a flat together at Betsy in Mulgrave Street. Actually across the road from Cyril Cusack, the famous actor. And uh, it, was, it was a bit bizarre because I had to lie about my age to the landlord. His name was Russell Jolly. And at the time, I was kind of mature looking for my age. And um, myself and the girlfriend went down and he asked for a deposit. And at the time, I was working in Brandella Skirts. And uh, Catherine was working in um, Anko in York Road. And she was just after getting a job in the cake shop in Patrick Street. So... Um, she was earning £40 a week and I was earning £54 a week and the, the flat was £34 a week. And we had a look at it and we moved in, I think, within two or three days. And that's when life really started to kick in. With the drugs, the alcohol, the violence, and of course his spina bifida, it's easy to forget that he was carrying another major disadvantage with him. 
he was illiterate. When, when I left school, well, I didn't leave school. I was asked to leave school, as 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 I said before. Um, I was absolutely a little shit in school, to be honest with you, and I don't know how they put up with me. But when I left, I was completely illiterate. Couldn't read, couldn't write. I was practically okay with like probably a bit of carpentry, a bit of steelwork and metalwork, as they called it back then. You know, I wasn't I wasn't bad with the old hands, with the kickboxing and, and the bit of boxing I was doing, but. Um, I was uh, I, w- I was pretty handy at fighting because I was an angry little shit. Illiteracy just was totally bizarre. But things started to change. Things started to change uh, when um, I basically uh, got the job in Jeeves Dry Cleaners. I strategically met a guy called Adrian Bourne, who isn't a family member and is not a relation. And uh, he uh, was doing one thing in the, in the business and I was doing the other thing. And what happened was um, we merged and uh, we merged with thought process basically and uh, he was kind of uh, half educated where I wasn't. We started saving in the post office and from there I got another job in the, I was working in, I was going back to Moonlight in Brendela Skirts at night time and I was uh, moonlighting meaning I was working at night time with them and I was working in the daytime and I started saving and I started saving really really hard from the flat. Myself and Catherine started saving and we were in a situation where you know we hadn't got much, but what we had, we really, really, really uh, looked after. Dad downplays the challenges illiteracy faced him with, but when you can't read a form, let alone fill it out, life becomes so much more difficult. With the insecurity of not being able to read or write, and the insecurity of not having a proper home over your, a roof over your head, we call it, it was very, very, very difficult. And it was daunting, it was daunting at times. But of course, buying a house means filling out forms, lots of them. But Reg was honest about his literacy, and yet again, the kindness of strangers came to his aid. So, at the age of about 19, just over the age of 19, I actually, I actually nearly closed the account with 10,000 pounds in it from the couple of jobs that I was working with, and at the time, that was a that was a big amount of money. So I went to Alan Foster then in the EBS Building Society, and I said to Alan, "I want to buy a house," and he said, "Yeah, no problem." He said, "What are you looking at?" I said, "I'm looking at a couple in Ballybrack." He says, "Off you go and pick one." So I literally went off and went and I picked one. And I bought my first property by the time I was uh, 20 years of age. In sport though, Reg's attention was now beginning to turn elsewhere. He continued to fight, but he now wanted to coach and he wanted to reach out to somebody who could help him. And this is where Drimna Boxing Club that Mick Dowling mentioned earlier comes into it. Now we all know our current Olympic hero is this woman. The winner on points by unanimous decision new women's lightweight Olympic champion in red but there was another champion back in dad's day 30 years ago And when Dad was looking to get into coaching, the leading light at Drimna Boxing Club was, well, guess who? Well, my name is Michael Carew. I won the 1992 Olympic Games uh, for boxing for Ireland. I'm the first ever male to do it, and I'm still the only male to do it. So they need to start getting their act together, the boys. Reg came here and he asked, could he do some coaching? And I says, yeah, no problem. And, you know, like, my dear old dad, you can see the picture of him on the wall there, you know, he says, if a coach says he'll do 10 minutes for you, let him do it for you, you know, he says. You know what I mean? Because it stops you from having to do it, he says. So, so Redskill was here for three or four years, and he, he took a lot of, you know, there was 
Tony Davo was a coach here, my father, I was. So there was good coaches in that sense of the world. And he, you know, he was always going to, from the start, he told me, I'm going to set my own boxing club up, you know. And I said, well, as long as you don't rob any of my boxers, you know. And he says, absolutely, no problem. He said, I want no chance. And then, obviously, he, he, a few years later, he did. Yeah, he got Angels Boxing Club up and running and a very successful club it is at the moment. Of course not content to be just the friend of the Olympic champion. Reg being Reg, he wanted to fight him. We had to do a, an exhibition bout, you know. And the worst thing about exhibition bouts, Martin always says to people, you know, Martin's my brother there, he says, you're doing an exhibition bout with Michael? He says, yeah, I'll give you one bit of advice. He says, well, don't hit him. He says, yeah. So he goes, well, just don't hit him. Uh, Red's got a few slaps that night, you know what I mean? So, uh, but listen, it was in, it was in the Salargan house at uh, the pub, and uh, it was a nice night, you know what I mean? He got to fight an Olympic champion, and he got to walk out of the ring, so he's out of it, you know, so. Michael Carruth is aware of Dad's story, and I think respects him for it. He says he got a second chance and took it from a bad part of his life. You know, that can happen, you know what I mean? Like, you know, all of a sudden you fall in with the wrong crowd, you know? It's not mean you're as bad as them, you know what I mean, but you're, you're associated with that. And, you know, listen, it's, it's one of those types of taboos, you know, we've been very lucky in this club that it has never affected us, you know what I mean? It's affected him, he came through it, and he's, 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 he's gone the right way, you know what I mean? He's worked, to, he's worked to, that, to his advantage, you know, that it's, it's not part of his life anymore. I opened up my own kickboxing club in a prefab, and it was brilliant. It was my first time as a coach. Coaching changed Dad's life. It gave him a level of satisfaction he never thought he could get. But what really impassioned him was an experience he had one day with a man called Martin Cousins. Where I was accepted in, in clubs years ago was by Martin Cousins, my mentor and coach. Um, I went down to Dunmore House in, Sally, in uh, Glenageary one day to Martin and he was coaching some Down Syndrome kids and I went, oh my God, this is absolutely incredible. I cannot believe what I'm looking at here. And then Martin asked me to do a class. I did a couple of classes for Martin and then Martin came back and Martin started resuming the classes. So I decided to open up uh, a part of uh, the Angels boxing slash powerlifting family um, to autistic children and that was about four and a half five years ago and we're still doing the class today around this time personal tragedy hit dad when news of his mum came through to him it's even hard even talking about it now because she's gone now five years and unfortunately she was taken from us from her addiction she fell down the stairs and then um, she died five or eleven days later in vincent's hospital from her injuries which was horrific but something about coaching people with disability was beginning to give him a deeper understanding of what he could give to people's lives. Um, I had a phone call one day from a woman who heard um, that I coach people with needs or special needs, and I'll never forget it, her name was Phil. And she rang me one day, she said, hi, is this Reg? Said, yeah. She said, listen, my son Connor would like to do some training. I said, yeah, no problem. And she said, um, he's very enthusiastic, and we only live around the corner, and would it be okay? And I said, yeah, why wouldn't it be? Well, he's got Down syndrome, and I said, and? What's, what's that all about? And uh, that's no problem. Bring him around. Let's have a chat with him. Let's get him off. Let's get him started. So that's five years ago nearly now. And Connor is a powerlifter with us. And Connor's done competition with us. And he's one of the lads. And he, you know, he goes to Chris's party with us. And he's an incredible young man. And that's a young Down syndrome kid. Another man rang me one time. And he's a cerebral palsy kid. 
and uh, he came to the gym and he has an electric wheelchair he comes down himself the guys lift him up the stairs they lift him down the stairs and they put him on the mats with Leo our jiu-jitsu guy and he does um, jiu-jitsu It's hard to overestimate the importance of this club to the kids who come here and when you talk to the kids and their parents they certainly let you know about it When Reg stands behind uh, the the punching bag and I have to punch the punching bag while he's behind it and that was kind of fun I guess uh, and not to brag or anything but I think I punched a lot harder than most of the other kids to me it means they're not they're treated exactly the same as everybody and Reg does it he gives out some he has fun with them he makes fun like do you know what I mean it's just they're treated no different and they're made treat no different do you know what I mean? And I've had Lorcan in one or two other clubs and they're kind of, they kind of make them feel like they have autism. They kind of let them do what they want. And let them walk. But in here, it's just a full hour of solid fitness and the kids are the structure, just fitness, just everything. The club means a huge amount um, because Ethan, we, we've struggled to get Ethan into anything sports-wise to get him physically moving and, and so on. So... This is the only place we tried eating with soccer, with a few things, and, and karate as well didn't work. But then we brought him down here once, and, and Reg and, and, and others as well, but obviously mainly Reg. Just I'm trying to think why did this work, to be honest, as I'm speaking to you. But I think it was just Reg. It's just eating really nervous. He suffers a bit from not only is he on the autism spectrum, but suffers a bit from anxiety as well. So he had the lip quivering here for the first two weeks coming in, but. Ever since then, he just loves coming here. And for us to have something like this every week for Ethan is just a godsend. To this very day, Dad runs a class devoted to children with autism. He's also on the coaching team of a world-class boxer called Willow Hayden, who's been signed by the legendary boxing promoter, Frank Warren. He's going to take the knee. It's all over. His trainer was ready with the white towel anyway. And Willow Hayden, in the second round, gets the stoppage that he wanted. Carried on, didn't he, from the end? These days, Dad travels the world as a highly respected coach. If you ring Reg, expect a surprise. He could be anywhere when he picks up. This is where the boy from Monkstown Farm with Spina Bivda has been in the last year alone. Oh, God. Um, well, I've been in Vegas in Mayweather's gym. I've been in Rani Gator's gym, met Francis Agano, which I do every year anyway. I've been in France. I've been in Ukraine. I've been in Iceland. I've been in Germany and South Korea. Uh, I've been in various places um, and I've been privileged. Uh, when you're a coach, then obviously you get, you, get, you get your flights paid, you get your accommodation paid, you get your transports paid, so you don't really need any money for it at all. So that's all part of the coaching aspect of it as well. But you also get to see the fruits of your labour, the people you're coaching. You know, win, lose or draw, you get to see them performing at their art, whether it be powerlifting, boxing, kickboxing or MMA. It's absolutely incredible, you know. This story is almost at an end, but I did promise I'd tell you what Reg did for me because this was surreal. I was 14 and not loving school. She's a musician today and a fantastic one as well and she's getting there. But uh, I never forget my daughter coming to me and we found out she was being slightly bullied in school and uh, a couple of things going on and she was a bit of a shy kid and um, she came to me one day and she uh, said to me, Dad, can I go up to the gym? And I said, of course you can, absolutely. If you're at the door when I'm going, you're very welcome to get in the car and off you come. 
came up and she trained and she trained in the boxing first and she didn't like it. She had her first boxing match and she didn't like it. So I said, why don't you have a, why don't you have a go at the powerlifting? Powerlifting, Dad? And I said, yeah, have a go at the powerlifting. See what it's like. There's lots of girls doing powerlifting. So she said, yeah. So we trained her really, really hard, like all the others. Didn't treat her any different. She started getting self-esteem. She started getting confidence. She started getting better. So one year later, Megan Byrne, my daughter, was the youngest ever athlete on an Irish powerlifting team. The Irish Drug Free Powerlifting Federation. She was 15. And she went over to Germany with her dad as one of the head coaches on the team of 17 senior athletes. She, she was she was a 17, 16 senior athletes and herself. And she became the junior world champion. And she ended up on the front pages of the newspaper with Katie Taylor. And it said, girl power. And on one side, it was Megan Byrne. And the other side was Katie Taylor. And that was a year after a kid was being bullied in school. This all seems like a bit of a dream now, but winning the world title is not where it ended. Uh, a couple of weeks later, she then broke the world record in deadlift and uh, she became the strongest girl in the world at that stage of her life at 15 years of age. And then she brought that accolade, the T-shirt, she brought the medal and the school were so proud of her. And hence she was never bullied again, not because she was a tough woman or a strong woman. People started appreciating her and start respecting her and looked at her and said, oh my God, this girl's a world title. I've always loved music and dreamed of being a singer, but I'd never have had the confidence to try it without those titles. Music is now my life and some important people in the music industry are hopefully beginning to notice. One of the guys that's going to be coming on board is a guy called Paul Higgins. And uh, Paul Higgins, uh, if anybody doesn't know who Paul Higgins is, Paul is the number six in One Direction. He was the man that looked after One Direction for Simon Cowell. And uh, he's actually got Megan's best interest at heart. And he will be hopefully managing Megan in the near future. All of this is a bit embarrassing to have anyone sing my praises like that. But that's my dad. Probably the only person I've ever even heard of who could get a shy girl who was being pushed around a world title, a world record, and a shot at a real music career. And this is not about me, because he has done this for so many others. We are a victim of Bert, whatever that may be. Whether it's a millionaire, whether it's a mid-class person, whether it's a working-class person, whether it's a lower-class, whatever, I don't distinguish from anybody. And if you can't do some of the good turn, don't do them any turn. Throughout my life as a child, uh, being brought up in that alcoholic home, you know, turning into all the little things I did along the way. Yes, I was in the wrong place in life at times, but for me, life, life has to be acceptance. Life has to be given. Life has to be caring. Life has to be given that little bit of love and you're going to get kicked along the way and you're going to say, why am I doing it? And, oh my God, this is crazy and I, I can't do this and all that. There's bad in the world, we all know that. There's good in the world, we all know that. There's mixed, there's mixed views in the world, we all know that. But if it just be good, give a little bit, care a little bit. If you can get a bit of love back or a bit of love given, it changes everything as far as I'm concerned. And that was the success in my life giving me that acceptance, giving me that platform, giving me that hope, telling me I'm good, telling me I'm okay, telling me I'm going to be okay. And that's all I'm trying to do today. And that's really what it's all about for me. And I'm still doing it to this day and I'll still do it till I'm on a simmer frame, which unfortunately could be in the next five years with my back the way things are going. But at the end of the day, even on the simmer frame, I'll find a way to get up and down the stairs, to get in and out of these gyms and to help people.
And that's the story of Reg Byrne, the boy from a working class street and an alcoholic and violent home. Illiterate and with spina bifida, who has changed the lives of countless people who could so easily have been simply forgotten about. Reg Byrne is my dad.